migrants tell their fascinating stories of how they arrived in this wonderful city. been in uh, in London? I, well, I've been in London for two years, just a little over two years now, but I was in Horsham, West Sussex, for about like six, seven years before that. I don't want to presume, um, but I should assume that you're American, is that right? I am. Uh, whereabouts did you grow up in the US? I grew up in California and in Utah. In Utah? I lived all over Provo, Orem, Ogden. Nice. My dad worked at the Mormon Temple out there. Six brothers and sisters. Wow. So you, I'm assuming you were brought up as a Mormon. Then. Yes. Okay. And and how was that experience for you? I mean, it's kind of all that there was for life when I was growing up. You know, we went to church once a week and then had a family night every Monday night. And then, um, you know, prayed as a family mornings and evenings. And I mean, it was pretty, like, rigorous. But, I'm, you know, when you're a kid and you don't know any better, that's all there is. Um, and I assume you're gay, bisexual? I like to How say... How do you identify yourself? I say the oranges in my garden are free. Okay. <laughs> so you have free oranges. I have free oranges. Wouldn't necessarily go down quite so well um, with the, the Mormons, uh, historically. Yeah. Um, were you excommunicated then? I wasn't. I, uh, well, so my dad was excommunicated, so my dad was gay. And, All right, okay. And, uh, if you uh, just explain what excommunication is. Sure, excommunication is just being kicked out of the church unceremoniously. It's kind of like a dishonorable discharge. So going back to what you said about uh, about your dad. Yeah. Um, now, being, uh, being a selfish gay man myself, um, do you feel like that stole your thunder a little bit? Do, you know, with it, did he come out <laughs> at the same time as you? Was it before you? Was it after you? No, uh, he kind of... I mean, he... That's all. That stuff happened kind of circa eighty five, eighty six. Okay. And so you were quite young at that point. I was young at that point, and I mean, my only kind of frame of reference was Boy George and Culture Club. You know, <laughs> if anybody asked me what a gay person was, I was like, it's somebody that wears makeup and, you know, yeah, wigs. And and do you think maybe having a is your is your father openly out and gay and, and accepting of it or is he? You know he's great. Like he was really great. Um, he passed about twenty about twenty years ago now. Okay. Um, uh, but he yeah he was really he was good. He was good with it. He said he always kind of identified on the Kinsey scale at about like four four point okay. five. So I mean my mother was his best friend and. And, uh, yeah, they fell in love. Again, for those people who don't know what the Kinsey scale is. Oh, right. So the Kinsey scale is based off of uh, it's a scale that's referenced in some research that was done by uh, Kinsey and, and, and co. Um, in the 20s and 30s, very progressive for the time. And it evaluated people's kind of sexuality. Um, I mean, while, while not probably like a perfect measurement tool, like it, it's kind of like for self-evaluation and gives people kind of some idea because, you know, if sexuality is a fluid thing, then, you know, or if, if people kind of have 
if it's a spectrum, then people have to fall somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, so one to six, and one is outwardly I think straight, six is six like, is I think it's, I think a zero is straight, and six is... Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah and three is bisexual. And three, I think it's supposed it, to. It's yeah. kind of the sweeping scale between the two. Um, so, okay, fast forwarding now to um, what? What did you do in the US then before you decided to to move to the UK? What What were you were you studying there? Were you working? I started. I started to do some undergraduate work, or I started to do some. Well, I started to do some undergraduate work, and I started to do some um, uh, some pre med, and I. Uh, Really, I think I was just kind of like flirting with school because I wasn't a hundred. I mean, I was sure what I wanted to do, but I don't think I was ready for the commitment. But um, I was working quite a bit, and um, I started out. Well, I was doing um, HIV work. I wanted to go back into kind of something that because my father passed away from HIV oh, wow. complications, okay. and um, right. and so I wanted to do something that would respect his memory. And so I uh, was working doing some research on um, the uh, the suitability um, and of doing venue testing in uh, bathhouses. So we did like a three-year study. Again, maybe it's a little more bathhouses. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, were, we were going we to... We call them that here. We, we were going to public sex venues. Here. Yeah. We were going to public sex venues to see if, um, to assess the feasibility of on-site testing, um, and then further to to evaluate whether or not having a testing facility or having access to testing or advertisement about testing on, on site would actually affect people's um, decisions about the kind of sex that they were having in these public sex venues. And what are your thoughts on, because uh, obviously at that particular moment in time, that must have been a really difficult time. You, your father's gay, you're in the, you, you've been excommunicated from the church, um, and then Reagan, you know, who just completely ignored this kind of public health issue. I mean, do you think maybe your father might not necessarily have... Not, not that he would not have, have, have contracted HIV and AIDS, whatever, but um, do you think maybe that didn't contribute to the fact that they just ignored this health issue because it was gay men? This is a big... So this is a big question. Um, and, I mean, to kind of answer... Because Margaret did the same here. Well, to answer it fairly, I mean, if you're asking about kind of, you know, Reagan's influence on, on HIV... Um, I mean, I think that it's it's pretty unanimous across the board that that Ronald Reagan was bad for public health. You know, in any kind of respect, the big reason why there's such a homeless problem today in the states is because Ronald Reagan was uh, pulled back funding for uh, for mental health, uh, and 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 consequently, just the services aren't there for people. So I kind of feel like, I mean, Reagan definitely is, has, has blood on his hands, and the Reagan administration has blood on their hands. Um, uh, as far as, like, my dad's case goes, though, I think there's a lot of things that were really unfortunate. Um, I would have to say the biggest con- contributor, though, to, um, to my dad contracting is, and, and anybody else, really, I think, during that time, was that there probably wasn't enough uh, social marketing 
to talk like public health, social marketing, to kind of talk about the importance of getting tested. But also there was a lack of information there too. I wish, you know, I wish that there was kind of, you know, something I could put my finger on specifically, but you know, the, the truth is that um, he himself worked in internal medicine and he had a partner who was HIV positive and it's impossible to tell whether, you know, he potentially got it through, um, you know, poor handling of, of body fluids or, you know, uh, accidental exposure or if, you know, if it was from his partner. And that was something that he told me expressly as well. And I think that part of the reason was obviously that he didn't want me to to have any kind of um, blame for his partner for him getting infected, yeah. uh, which actually I never did. It never even occurred to me. And, you know, your specialism is, is sexual health, isn't it? It is. So do you think maybe all these contributing factors from your experiences throughout your life have, have led to this point of you wanting to get into sexual health to maybe make a difference and educate people and... Have you been reading my... Uh, my <laughs> <laughs> so, with... Um, where this all started for me was um, when I was young, I was 13, uh, and 13, 14, and I started doing... Um, I was giving up my Saturdays to do clinic defense because I kind of fell in with the people that, you know, hung out in the library quad or on the stage at school that were a little bit more arty. Um, they seemed more interesting to me as, as people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever really been interested in kind of, you know, the mainstream person, at least I wasn't in high school. And, um, and so some of the people that I became friends with were activists and I got introduced to Planned Parenthood, um, you know, which provides a lot of uh, reproductive health for you know a good portion of the United States, they're such a wonderful organization that are constantly coming under fire, literally the, and figuratively. By the conservative right, um, uh, and some in the left as well, because they're classed as abortion clinics, aren't they? They That's, say that, but then, I mean, it, I think well, they do so much more, don't they? Yeah, they offer a host of, of family planning services for people. Um, and But what's unfortunate is that a lot of times um, people don't have access. I mean, DNC's dilation and cuterage is the one procedure that doctors can opt out of. Um, and and people kind of don't do it because of whatever moral gumption or whatever kind of moral attitudes they have. Um, my personal feeling about that is that if you can't do the job, then don't do it. Um, you shouldn't be up for it in the first place. Like, yeah. But, Planned Parenthood ends up taking a lion's share of the reproductive, of the responsibility for delivering adequate reproductive health family planning services on demand um, as a result of the lack of access. So you got into all this when you were young and... I did. You were were helping all these clinics and Planned Parenthood. The clinic that I was doing, escorting people across protest lines, um, those people, uh, that clinic was, um, was firebombed. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually. So I was there at a time when doctors had were wearing bulletproof vests yeah. to work because they were being shot at. Wow. Yet by people who said that they were against murder. You know, th- thinking about that, how did you then go from, okay, I'm 13, I'm volunteering at these sexual health clinics to I want to, I want to be a doctor in sexual health? How did you go from that to that? I saw <laughs> what was a long path. There's okay. a lot of different different Go ahead. stuff, but um, well, what it, I think what really happened was that a seed was planted with the idea that um, that people were under attack by people who claimed to have 
you know a corner on that market yeah. for um, morality in society. Um, you know, people that were anti-family planning but pro-death penalty, or you know, people that just seem to have a lot of contradictions, um, who seem to be a lot more concerned about what other people were doing than what they were doing or how they were conducting themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, people that claim to be, I'm just going to kind of go into the religious thing a little deeper. And they want their religious freedom, but only for their religion. Right, only for their religion. <laughs> they don't want it for other people's religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, God forbid uh, anybody, any Islam wants anything, you know, that... So I started I started, started to see doctors as real champions for health, um, and it was something that I admired, and it was something that I respected, and I started to see a lot more people who were being marginalized, who were entitled to services, um, who were entitled to quality of life that were being refused that either by lack of access or by actual roadblocks and obstacles mm-hmm. in the way of uh, people interfering legislatively or physically um, with getting access to services. Uh, one of the other jobs that I did was with a sexual health clinic, an occupational self, uh, occupational health and safety clinic for sex workers called the St. James Infirmary. Uh, it was a fantastic clinic. Whereabouts was that? I was in San Francisco. Okay. And it was a free clinic for anybody who worked in the sex industry. Oh, wow. So that was adult performers, that was dominatrixes, that was exotic dancers that might not consider themselves um, you know, sex workers explicitly, but people that were exchanging, you know, sex services for, for late or sexual labor of sorts for money mm-hmm. or for trades. What's been your, the toughest moment in your career? In my career? As a doctor. Well, I'm not, I'm not a doctor yet. I'm still... Well, but uh, you know, since, you're a student. since yeah, you're 13 yeah. and you had all this contact with all these people because uh, I guess uh, you've... Uh, been with people with really tough lives and there's a lot what's been the moment you said like wow life is just crazy I think I always to be honest always knew that life was crazy um, I think that what I felt more than anything is seeing people who were either disadvantaged or who had been um, survivors hmm. and and they really were survivors I mean I worked in a the clinic in the sexual health clinic and we had people come in I had a trans woman come in and tell me about how she had to murder her husband um, because he was violent. And to hear about these stories was unbelievable. Um, just the bravery that it took for some people to get to these places and how they face persecution on a daily basis. Um, I never, it never ceased to, to impress me. So those kinds of moments were important. Meeting people on the street that were, I, I met a husband and wife and this, they always stay with me for some reason and they were in their 50s late 50s and um, they had kids that they were trying to get back that had been in the system for a long time they wanted to be parents again but they were addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and in order to get um, in order to get methadone in the states you have to put I mean it may have changed since then but you had to put down like a 250 copay really yeah and so these people were doing sex work every day she was doing sex work and he was guarding her and making sure that she was okay on the streets every day until they were able to get back uh, their kids which I I mean I don't know how that story ended I would like to imagine that it ended well but um, more often than not or at least you know at that point in life they hadn't been able to to make those funds and when you need when your body physiologically needs a substance it needs that substance and if you don't have the money that night you have to spend it on the drugs 
So it's a really nasty cycle to be in, but like every day hope sprang anew and every day they tried again. It was like, you know, the myth of Sisyphus rolling that rock up a hill just to have it roll down on them and have them push it up again. And those kinds of moments I think are really profound in human in human history. So why 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 London? Why did you think actually screw America? Why why did you come here? Well, I didn't think screw America. Uh outright. When I turned 30, I started um, just wanting to try a lot of things that I hadn't tried. Okay. I wanted more kind of, I think I played it relatively safe sort of things. I started skateboarding and promptly like twisted my ankle, joined a rugby team and uh, got got really injured. But I, I loved it. I just, I think I craved a little bit more that I started boxing. Um, yeah, I don't know what it was. I think it was just kind of like this desire for more physicality. Okay. Um, and to just experiment with, with with that side of myself, which I guess I hadn't done up until that point. So the contact spot in the US enabled you to come to the UK? How did you... So I met uh, uh, one of my teammates, um, uh, Graham, my husband. He's, uh, was on, he's in his penultimate years from... Uh, Queen's University okay. studying economics and he was over at Berkeley. And how long have you been married now? We've been married for eight, nine years. Wow. So why, why, how come you settled here and not there then? Uh, because of the laws against uh, same-sex marriages. Um, actually at the time that I moved here, Prop 8 was really big. <coughs> proposition 8, which was the proposition restricting the description of marriage to between one man and one woman. Okay. Um, and because of that, sure, same-sex unions were recognized governmentally um, with local governments, um, but they weren't, and, and marriages were being conducted, but they weren't ones that were legally recognized. Okay. And because of his status as a foreign uh, national, he wasn't necessarily able to come and settle um, unless he was on a work visa or something like that. So. After kind of doing long distance for two years, we decided we needed to shit or get off the pot. That's one way of putting it. Um, so, so you decided to move to London, not to London. You decided to move to the UK. Yeah. Whereabouts did you settle first? Horsham, um, because I knew that I was going to be doing sexual health work, and I knew that it was going to be sort of a, a metropolitan-based operation. Um, and Horsham was right between Sussex and Brighton, or it was between, sorry, London and Brighton. Okay. So... So you got the gears on one end and the gears on the other. <laughs> right, totally. Except, that's what I thought, but going into it, it turned out that it was actually, there was quite a, a few um, migrant Africans and also a lot of uh, heterosexual women as well oh, that wow. I had never encountered before. Certainly not in San Francisco, but I mean, like, that's kind of an exceptional population. So I came in, I felt like I had, you know, a lot of experience, you know, 12 years of experience. And then going into London and actually seeing how diverse it really was, I had, oh, I had half the information at best. So after you spent that time there, and you, 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 you now do live in London, don't mm-hmm. you? Um, I was working here. I was working in, um, uh, for Hammersmith and Fulham PCT for a while. So I was working with the NHS um, with, uh, with an LLC. And that was, I was basically doing service development um, for uh, people living with chronic conditions. Okay. Such as? HIV, uh, hepatitis, hep C. Um, eventually, you know, sort of anything could be looked at as a chronic condition, I guess. You know, poverty. 
So how do you, how do you find London then compared to San Francisco, or is it is it fairly similar? No, uh, London never ceases to amaze me. Um, I'm finding new things about it all the time. Like even today, you know, coming out here, it's it's so beautiful. Um, and I don't know if it's just because it's a beautiful time of year, but there's so much about London that I keep discovering, and it feels like I'm always discovering new things all the time. Uh, and that's something that I really like about it, and I love that it is a, a world class city. Do you think you'll stay here forever? That's a really big question. I think um, that as I get older, I have more of a desire to settle and be with family. Um, and for me, my family is in Sweden, and, and you know, it's with my my heart's with my godsons and with my extended family there. And so, I, anymore, I'm sort of determined to go wherever the job takes yeah. me. So, I mean, I think there's probably a really high chance that I'll end up in Africa at some point and probably for some length of time because I really do, I am really drawn to people that are struggling Yeah. Um, and the passion, you know, they always say follow your passion and my passion is always in sort of helping people that, that, that need help, people that have bureaucratic obstacles or, you know, organizational problems or whatever, Yeah. bureaucratic crap. I just want to help people kind of get around that or break through that stuff to just allow people to live longer, healthier, more fulfilled lives. You DJ as well. Um, I DJ music. Um, I love music. It's always been kind of in my blood. My family's musical. Okay. Um, I'm sort of the black sheep for going into science. Okay. <laughs> With a bit of music on the side, though. With a bit of music on the side. So, yeah, I'm a, I love... I just... I've always really liked music. I have... Um, I think a lot of the people that I'm friends with are, you know, either musicians or artists, um, or healthcare practitioners. Okay. A lot of them are DJs, I've noticed. I, I know a lot of doctors who are DJs. Do you? Yes. Wow, that's so strange. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you've got to have some Maybe kind of release. Out, yeah, some creative something, outlet, I suppose. Something's going on there. Yeah. I don't know yet. Yeah, they need a creative outlet, I suppose. Um, and aside from, you know, doing the music, doing the DJ, you're kind of involved in this anarchic religious organisation. Tell, tell, tell us what that is. Not necessarily in specifics what you do there, but what, what the organisation is. It's so... I am a member of an organisation called the Satanic Temple, uh, which is uh, my involvement with them um, has been really driven by uh, um, I feel a real connection with what they're doing in the world. Okay. They have a headquarters in Salem, okay. Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yeah, which nice. they've j- actually just the announced yesterday that they're opening up a museum there and, oh, wow. and their headquarters to the public. I've been involved with them for, I guess, probably about a year and a half. Um, and my interest was because I saw a news article about Oklahoma put up um, a statue of the Ten Commandments and the Satanic Temple said, what a great idea. We too would like to put up a statue. Um, really just following kind of what they were saying about, oh, well, you know, this isn't really church and state. Ideally, we thought it would be wonderful to set up a little monument to diversity here. Um, And they just kind of followed along because really what they do is kind of hold up this really wonderful black mirror to, to assumptions about morality and society and uh, and it's really awesome because they don't say I mean they, they're atheists they're not actually devil worshippers and they say you know I don't we don't they don't say you know we don't believe in God expressly yes they are atheists but they don't tell people like you're false for having the beliefs that you do um, they just encourage rational thinking 
Um, their seven tenets say that people should be uh, act with compassion towards each other and, and, and strive to be the best kind of person that they can be. And if anybody who was like a detractor for them even looked at their site and looked at the list of tenets that they have, they would realize that these people are actually doing really wonderful things. And, and I think it's fair that if you know people are doing really horrible things in the name of God, why shouldn't another group of people do really wonderful things in the name of Satan? It's really interesting, actually, that you've got you've got the you know the, the this, this organization, and then you've got your job, and you know it's kind of it feels it feels like from an outsider's point of view looking in that all these experiences in your childhood have led you to this point where all these different threads of religion and sexuality, um, you know, have led you to this point where actually it all kind of integrates from. What you experienced as a kid? Abs- it's quite, it's abs- quite interesting. Well, it absolutely does. And I think that everybody gets to a point in their life where you either kind of like, um, what's that line from Batman? You live long enough to see yourself become the uh, the bad guy or the villain, I think. Okay. There's something about it. But um, life, you just end up kind of, you got to make sense of it somehow, right? You know, there's not really a lot of reason why things happen, but, you know, you can certainly forge your own reason. And I think I just was like, if I've had this exposure, if I've had this, if I've seen these things, then, you know, I want to be able to do something about it. I mean, it, it would not be in my character. And, and I doubt very much that it would be in the character of a lot of people, because I do think that people are very compassionate on the whole yeah. um, to do nothing. You've had experiences of being in the U.S. and being in the U.K. Do you think that attitudes to sexuality and morality are different here or they're fundamentally the same they're just hidden no I think they're different for sure I mean when, How pe- so? when people ask about what I love about England I always say green belting first because it is so nice <laughs> to be able to just walk into a green area um, but what I really love is that there's a lot of things that they get pretty right on um, there's not really racism here in the way that it exists systemically in the US. There's not really, um, a people live a better quality of life. Most people, if you ask them like if they were religious, I think, or if they were Christian, a lot of people would say yes, um, you know, because of CE, but I don't think that a lot of people are practicing or even really give a shit about it one way or another. Um, I don't think sexuality is a huge issue either. Um, I think that, that there's masculine and feminine issue, that there's gender constructs. Uh, I do notice a lot of these sort of gender constructs here that are pervasive, um, but I think that those things are pervasive across you know, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I haven't really, I haven't really ha- experienced a lot of adversity, certainly not based on you know, any, any traits or perceived traits that somebody might have about me in any way. Um, maybe a little bit of nationalism. You know, I know that that exists. Certainly, I had somebody, some really drunk lady who was on the deck sunning herself at the gym in Horsham. I wish I knew your name because I'd call you out. Make a point about how, you know, oh, funny that the NHS would get somebody from the outside to come in and do work here. <laughs> I was like, maybe I was qualified for the job, bitch. What, what, is, what is unique about London? What is... What... what fascinates you about the place and yet in the same way what frustrates you about London 
How much time do we have? Go ahead. All right. <laughs> uh, what fascinates me about London is that you've got a place like the George, which is a pub that's around London Bridge, and it's the oldest. It's the oldest place in. Uh, I think it's the oldest pub, certainly, or the oldest building um, in central London. And it's older than America. It's older than America. I think my like my house is older than America, you know, and I don't even live in that old of a place. I, I've seen like gravestones that were like older than most countries I've been to. Uh, so you've got a place like the George, so old, and it's full of mice. Sorry, guys. Um, is this a good or the bad? This is good. Okay. And you see it, or fascinating, really. So it's really old, and then you've got places like. Canary Wharf that are really, really developed. But you've also got like protections on these older buildings and so, you know, they can't change a light bulb. You've got canals that are like these wonderful kind of, you know, uh, aquatic thoroughfares that you can stroll through on beautiful days and get around the city and see like a, a different side of it. It just, you know what it's like? It's kind of like, you know, Ikea and all those different showrooms that you go into. Yeah. I feel that way about London, that kind of like, <laughs> One day you're in like a high rise and like suddenly, you know, you walk through a doorway and you're in this like old farmhouse from street to street to yeah. street to street. There's yeah. so much like diversity, ar- architectural diversity, cultural diversity, you name it. Uh, and and that's what I that is actually what I love about it. And I do love that the racism isn't here. I do love that um, that the disab- disabled people have a better quality of life and that there's really um that people have so much more ability to affect their uh, their local government because of the size of it. Um, and also, this is just my opinion, but I think people here are just kind of generally a bit, a bit better informed about things and have a better understanding of world history and about their position within kind of that whole matrix. And your frustrations? My frustrations are with uh, the lack of accountability that I find that seems to be across the board. Um, I'll just use National Rail as an example. Okay. <laughs> um, I had this horrible experience on Southern Rail um, that I, my, my stepfather was, uh, was dying and I had to fly back home. Um, and I, the train missed my stop I got off at the next stop, but I was so out of it that I left my bag on the train. I had my suitcase, I left my bag. My bag was the one that had all of my stuff in it, my passport and things. And so I was trying to get that back from the station that I was in. And and the station agents were trying to help me and they were trying to call ahead and have somebody get the bag and they were going to try and you know work it out for me they were trying to they were trying to help in the best way that they could while being understaffed and trying to you know help these lines of people and um and uh, I was trying to manage my anxiety the entire time. And uh, this woman finally came out and she was like, look, I'm, uh, if you want, I can hold your suitcase here and you can run over here and try and get your bag. She's like, we've been trying to call them um, ahead, but the, we have, the numbers that we have to call uh, the office are the same numbers that customers have. We have to go through the same system. Um, and it just seemed like such a horrible system where the people weren't given the information. There was such a, an, an us and then there was such a divide between the, the, the bureaucrats or you know the administrators and the people who were 
uh, who were on site yeah. to help. And yeah. there's just, I think there's a lot of, um, I was really touched that people were really going out of their way to, to help me, but it was frustrating to see that there were all of these kind of chinks in the system or there were uh, all of these gaps between in communication or there were gaps in accountability you know and there's that kind of joke on the little Britain where they're like oh computer says no <laughs> but like for real it's like that really? I feel like it's that way did you miss a lot. the flight? I did I oh. did um, that day was really profound um, in fact the woman who came out to help me with my bag um, she had one leg and she was hauling my bag with one leg into the back of the office, and 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 I could tell that their hearts were with me, and that they were sympathetic, and um, and it, and it just really stank, you know. I ended up calling the uh, the airline that night, and I was like, I really need to rebook this flight, and they were like, it's going to be six hundred, seven hundred pounds, and I was like, I spent pretty much what I had to spend on this ticket, and I explained the circumstances, and I mean, I must have, I don't know what I sounded like. It's kind of in a fugue state at that time, but the woman on the phone was just like, hang on a second, and she sorted it out for me, and she was like, don't worry about it. She's like, if it happened to me, I would want somebody to do it for me. I came home and I actually bawled like a baby. Yeah. And it was like in part because like my stepfather had just passed away, but I was also really touched by how wonderful everybody had been. But it also made me feel really frustrated with all of the bureaucracy. And so if you ask like what is frustrating about London, there's a lot of bureaucracy that's just entrenched that people just kind of accept, I think, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I'm sorry for the delay that this will cause to your journey. <laughs> over and over for everything and not just I mean not just with the trains but yeah. it's like with everything it seems like you know if something's not in the system people can't find it and uh I mean, it's everything. It's everything. And sometimes it bothers me acutely. Um, and it's usually just after I've gone somewhere that it isn't like that. And I've come back because it's sort of like ripping the scab off a yeah. little bit. Yeah. The London Living. Migrants tell their fascinating stories of how they arrived in this wonderful city. 